Hello, and welcome to Veterans for Responsible Leadership's podcast, An Accountable America. Thanks for joining us. My name is Jason Belcher. I'm your producer and co-host. I'm an Iraq veteran and former Air Force officer. With us today, we have the president and founder of VFRL, Dr. Dan Barkov, who is a former Navy SEAL and current emergency room physician. And our guest today is Mr. Chris Goldsmith, who is the founder and president of Task Force, Task Force Butler. He's an Army veteran, and we're going to be talking with him about uh, his efforts to stop political extremist organizations from recruiting military veterans. You know, when you, when you speak out against hatred and injustice, you're taking a stand against both. And when you take a stand against hatred and injustice, you give other people the courage to do the same. And that's why that's what Chris is doing and has been doing, and that's why we're excited to talk with him today. So welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, guys. Uh, Chris, I, uh, you know, I am so excited for uh, this conversation. The stuff that you're doing is, is really interesting. Um, but I'd like to start with just kind of a little bit of, you know, the basic bio for folks who, who might not know you. When, you know, when did you, how did you get involved in this, in the sense, you know, where did you grow up? What's, where are you from? Sure. So I was born and raised in Long Island. Um, I was born in 85. So I was in 11th grade when September 11th happened. And like any other New Yorker, um, you know, I, I personally lose anybody, but it felt like everyone I knew had, had lost somebody or, you know, parents were working in the city on that day. Right. So so that left a huge impact on me. Um, so by the time that I was old enough to join the army, the Iraq war had started. So, uh, well, the Iraq war started before I graduated. Um, and then I found myself in, in Iraq in 2005, uh, joined the army as a as a forward observer. Spent most of the time in Iraq in Sadr City, then later in Camp Liberty, Baghdad. Um, and uh, I got out of the military in a less than traditional way. I uh, had a really rough time. Uh, back then, it was before PTSD. It was really part of the American lexicon, right? So I was suffering from severe post-traumatic stress disorder. At the age of 19, it was my, my job to photograph things like mass graves. And... Uh, I thought because I hadn't been, you know, in, involved in like serious combat that like PTSD wasn't, you know, something that would affect me. Um, but it did. And I attempted suicide in 2007. Um, and the army interpreted that as an act of misconduct and I got kicked out with bad paper. So with the general discharge, I lost access to the GI bill. I became completely unemployable. Um, not just because my mental health is so bad, but because a bad paper discharge, you know, might as well be a criminal record. So for my suicide attempt, I was created, treated like a, a criminal. Um, all of that negative experience uh, in the long run has, has probably um, in a way been good for me. That is what motivated me to become a veteran advocate. You know, when I went through that experience, I've, there's no feeling that's more alone than that. Um, you know, stripped of, I, I wasn't, uh, wasn't court-martialed or anything. I was just kicked out, so I didn't lose my rank. But I did lose my identity. You know, I, I went from Sergeant Goldsmith to Chris overnight um, and lost my community because all of my guys, you know, deployed and, and I wasn't with them. So, so, uh, so tell me... Tell me, like, let me back up a little bit. Like, yeah. so you're in Iraq, and you are 
doing a job that, while necessary, was, I, I can't think of another word for it aside from traumatic, right? You know, the being in combat is sort of one thing and has its own can of worms, but to go around and to, you know, have to photograph um, atrocities and... I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about what that was like within your unit. Did you did you talk about, hey, this is really fucked up to the other guys that you were working with? Was that did you guys did you appreciate at the time like how crazy that is? Um, it's yes, yes and no. Like on a you know my remembering the experience as, as I do. Um, and you know, part of the reason for it being PTSD is like, I remember the feeling of being there and in the front of my head, I'm, I don't care about Iraqis, you know, these dead people, it doesn't matter to me, but it, you know, I'm still a human being and even though I had convinced myself, like, I don't care. I was prepared for this. Like I, I very, was very conscious of the, of believing, of convincing myself that this was fine. This is just, this is not as bad as the next guy's got it, right? The unit who was in Sodder City before me had something like a 40% casualty rating. So for, for my unit, which did not see uh, much, con- I mean, people tried to blow us up and they shot at us, but we never got to shoot back. So, you know, I don't consider it combat the way that a lot of other people experience combat. Um, and in, in that moment, you know, I was, I had very much in front of my mind, like, this deployment is not as bad as other people have got it. Like, this is not affecting me. This is, this is nothing. But those, taking those photographs of, of the mass grave, of these, like, random murders, I was put in a position at 19 years old. You know, I joined the Army to, to be a forward observer, to blow stuff up, to run with the infantry, blow stuff up. Never thought I'd be taking pictures of mass graves. Um, I became like the guy, like, you know, people watch NCIS, right? Like those are professional investigators, you know, affiliated with the military who are trained, who are in law enforcement. I was a 19-year-old kid with a, you know, a, a, a digital camera that ran on AA batteries and a notepad and... I was ostensibly there to like help the Iraqi people and like figure out not just why this person got murdered, but who the hell are they? Right. Right. Um, So instead, and that never happened, you know, I didn't have the skill set, the background or any of the tools to help me like solve those literal murder mysteries. And even though I had convinced myself that I don't care about Iraqis, like I, it had ingrained in me that they were all the enemy, that I couldn't trust any Iraqi, right? I just deeply ingrained Islamophobia and racism, basically. Wasn't thinking of it that way at the time, but that's what yeah. it was. Um, but it was still, again, like, the, it was affecting me on a deep, like, biochemical level. Like, my body was responding with, with empathy and, and a moral injury that the front of my mind was, was not. You know, you said something that I find fascinating, which is that, and I felt this too, 
we have this tendency as as veterans, I think, to kind of compare our experience to somebody else's. And you know, in in my mind, like I'm like, man, I only I only went to Iraq once, right? I know guys went to Iraq five times, and I only went once. So you know, it's it's just crazy. I don't remember being sort of told that in the military, but we all sort of adopted that attitude of like, well, this isn't that bad. You know, so-and-so's got it worse, or so-and-so did more. And you even hear guys who lost their legs or, you know, have their have the Congressional Medal of Honor, and, and they say the same thing, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's something that the military culture... Either it's, you know, either it's innate and the military culture takes advantage of it, or it's something that we, you know, it's part of the unwritten curriculum that we all kind of pick up in the military. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, you know, the, the military and, and this, you know, I didn't realize as a recruit, as a kid who always wanted to join the military, but the, the, the military is a team sport. And, if, yeah. you know, if you're a kid on a, on a sports team, like, you know, you you push through injuries to to score, right? Yeah. Like you're pushing through for the team, and, and you're always thinking like, if I'm physically able to do this, like I'm good. And sometimes you push through the injuries to the point that you're you're you know turning a sprain into a break. And that kind of like caring for your teammate and caring for your your common mission is you know, a hundred times more important when you join the military. It's, it's really this, it's not just military culture. It's, it's our desire to be part of a community requires often sacrifice for that community to, to be a true member of a community. You have to be a full participant and how do you be a full participant? You, you know, sometimes it means catching bullets so that somebody else doesn't. Do you, well, I'll come back to that because I, I, I see this, this theme coming up again later in the conversation, perhaps. But so, so you come back, you come back to the States and you start another workup or what, you know, was your unit set to deploy again? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so after, though I had a, a great career, you know, I was, I was promoted to E5 in like two years flat, um, which is, you know, pretty quick for uh, somebody in the regular army. And um, that said, I hated hated my military experience. You know, I was yeah. in a unit with really toxic leadership. Um, you know, from from the commanding general down, um, and I just felt like I was um, was not able to reach my potential in anything. Um, I was in a star MOS, so I couldn't reclass to to anything else. That's it. I was a forward observer, never going to be anything more. Um, and when I had joined, you know, I wanted, I, like everybody else who joins, thinks I was going to make a career out of it, right? So sure. coming home from Iraq, now thinking, like, what the hell did I do? You know, I spent a year in Iraq for nothing. Like, we're now losing the war, according to, like, public opinion and, and frank, my own opinion, right? And then uh, in the beginning of 2007, January 2007, President Bush gives State of the Union where he announces the troop surge. And now I've been saving up my leave dates so I, I can ETS earlier than, you know, my original contract. So I should have been out in like the beginning of May. Well, that turned into my unit's new deployment date um, when 
South Lost Orders came down. So I went from in January of 07 thinking that I'm going to be out of the Army in May of 07 to I'm actually going to deploy the very same week that I thought I was getting out of the Army. And that, you know, the underlying PTSD that I had been dealing with, um, I had never gotten in trouble. But I was doing a lot of stuff that I could have gotten in trouble. You know, I was drinking heavily. I was getting in physical fights all the time. In an infantry battalion, like, everybody's doing that, right? Right. <laughs> everybody's, you know, and you think it's normal. It's not normal to, to do what we were doing. Uh, so, anyway, I, um, after I found out that I was going to be stop-lost, the symptoms that I had kept mostly under control uh, just started going, like, just I, I couldn't control it anymore. Um, suicidality was, was, you know, taking over my thoughts, uh, started, you know, pushing away my friends and family, really isolating myself, which only made things worse. Uh, I was physically ill from having been exposed to burn pits and the army wasn't taking that seriously. Um, so I was like in physical pain, couldn't breathe. Um, I was, I was miserable in all sorts of ways and in May of 2007, the last, like, expressing, and, and, you know, this is saying with the, the benefit of years of therapy, like, the last expression of control over my own destiny that I had felt like suicide was the only option. It was the only way that I could, the only way that I could control any aspect of my life was to decide when it ended. Um, thankfully, I was, you know, unsuccessful in, in my suicide attempt. Um, but from the moment that I woke up in that hospital handcuffed to a gurney, I had gone from kind of like the golden boy of my unit, um, you know, acing every P PT test, like any other test that was ever put in front of me, promoted ahead of my peers. I went from golden boy to treated like a criminal. And, uh, and, and that, you know, made a lot of things worse for me in, in terms of what was going on in my head. So you get a general discharge, mm -hmm. and now you're a civilian, no access to, you had access to VA healthcare, is that correct? Correct, yep. No, no GI Bill, which, you know, as a guy who used the GI Bill, I used the GI Bill, you know, it paid for three quarters of, of medical school for me, um, and I, I can't think of a better way for a society to, you know, kind of repay its its uh, its warriors to, to do that, but... So you lose that, right? Mm -hmm. And you're just one. I mean, are you applying for a job at McDonald's? Like, where where were you in life? Like, yeah. So in, in the more immediate term, I was because my narrative of separation was misconduct, serious offense. Uh, my DD, that's what it said on my DD two fourteen. Um, I I was. Complete. I basically had to like apply for jobs and pretend that I had been in limbo for four years. Otherwise, you know, it forced me into a discussion about suicide and to to justify my suicide attempt, right? And, and who wants to hire somebody who just survived a suicide attempt and who's you know got kicked out of the army, right? And because of that narrative of separation, I couldn't even collect unemployment benefits. So I I went back to New York was living in my childhood bedroom, um, was delivering pizzas once a week for my little sister who was running a pizza shop. 
Um, and, you know, had felt like I had nothing to live for and I was miserable. Um, miserable in a way that, like, that words, uh, I'm at a loss for words to describe how I was feeling for, you know, especially in the following months following getting kicked out, but really it lasted for years before, you know, thankfully, because I had access to VA healthcare, I was able to work through it, but it took a long, long, long time. So one of the things that we've talked about on this pod with, with other folks is just how difficult it is to transition out of the military, where getting into the military, you've got this boot camp experience going from civilian uh, into becoming a soldier or airman or marine or, or what have you, and we recognize it sort of as a society as this as this kind of climactic event, this, this leaving behind, in most cases, a childhood, and then joining this this new team and, and becoming this, you know, becoming a Marine, becoming a soldier. Uh, we have movies about it. And the, the way in which most of us get out is much more anticlimactic, right? You, you get a couple PowerPoint lectures, and then you're driving home with, you know, a couple of mementos and a sea bag. And I think a lot of veterans really, really struggle, even the ones like me who sort of got out with a plan. You know, I was, I was going to go to school and, and whatever, but, you know, that first year of medical school, I felt pretty lost, um, pretty different than, than everyone else. And to have that normalcy of, well, normal is the wrong word, but to have that that experience of transitioning back into civilian life, which almost every veteran I've talked to is like, yeah, my transition was fucked up, man. Like, I had a lot of problems. Um, and then yours seems even far more extreme, right, because of, of all the reasons we just discussed. So how did you get out of that? How did you get back on your feet, so to speak, and... Um, and how did you start doing what you're, you're doing now? Yeah, so, well, the, the most critical and, and most immediate thing that, that saved me was that my, I had a childhood bedroom that I could go back to, that I could yep. stay, you know, at, at my mother's house. Um, you weren't literally homeless. Yeah, so I was, you know, by definition, I was homeless. You know, I, I lacked the resources to pay rent therefore was homeless. Um, but I had a mother who would tolerate, you know, not just having her adult son living at home, but her adult alcoholic, you know, really messed up son living at home. Um, with two dogs, you know, like I, <laughs> I had a house, I had a couch, you know, I had a bedroom set and everything. And I moved back into a, a 10 foot by 10 foot room. Right. Um, and the v, I had a really good team at my VA, uh, Northport VA Medical Center in, in Long Island, um, who understood and put up with my lack of being a good patient. I, I was unreliable. You know, they would set appointments for me. I would intend on showing up, and then I, I might not show up because, you know, I couldn't get out of bed that day, uh, or I would randomly show up when I felt like I was, you know, having a mental health emergency and they would, you know, 
make sure to get me in to see my doctor. Um, but it really took about five years before I even began to learn to be aware of, of these cycles of depression and anxiety and everything else that I, that I had been going through. Uh, after that, like five, six year point of having been out and gone through therapy this whole time and on and off meds, um, I finally found out that I was eligible for vocational rehabilitation. So, uh, voc rehab is, is designed for veterans who have disabilities and it is not an education program. It is, it is what it sounds like. It's, it's to get you employed in my case, you know, because I had, uh, I had been in blue collar work and had been suffering injuries from that as well on top of everything that I went through in the military, sat down with my voc rehab counselor, you know, scored high on, on the aptitude test. And they said, you should go to school. So I did. And in that first semester at my community college, I went from fulfilling like a lot of negative stereotypes about student veterans um, or, you know, veterans as a whole. I would, you know, go to class with headphones on, with my hood up over my head, not, not talk to anybody. Everybody's, you know, a baby compared to me. Um, and a couple of other combat vets at the school, like, recognized this and literally pulled me out of it, like, pulled me out of it, you know, off of a couch and, like, made me socialize with them. By the end of that semester, you know, I had gone from not wanting to associate with anybody, not having any friends at the school, to being elected as my, uh, as the president of the Student Veterans of America chapter there. So in that, you know, I, I returned to the veteran community that I had been excised from when I got kicked out of the military. And with that came, you know, my identity and my purpose. And I learned how to become an advocate, first for veterans with bad paper discharges, and then started working for Vietnam Veterans America, learning about everything, healthcare, GI Bill, DOD personnel policy, the NDAA, you, you name it. Um, and it was, you know, how did I get here to the Nazi hunting stuff that I do today? It, it was because I was a Vietnam veterans American. I was, um, because I was the resident millennial at an organization buying for people in their mid seventies, I was, you know, helping out with their social media, came right. to find a, a fake version of VBA. Long story short, it was a Russian intelligence operation that was extremely sophisticated, persistent, and effective. Two years later, I produced a report. That, you know, the CEO of, of BBA made me the first chief investigator of veterans organization ever. Uh, I used to joke that I would be last, but recently <laughs> I've started a whole organization doing it now. Um, and uh, so at first I was going after foreign and uh, foreign entities that were targeting troops, veterans, and our families. But one of the through lines of all of that research was the extremism that they were injecting into our community. The, right. Not not just like you know it's it's cheap to say like oh left versus right stuff. No, it was it's like racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic stuff. Right, inflaming tensions between different communities within uh, the veterans community. So black and and white vets. Right, as Black Lives Matter became a thing. They were, you know, these foreign entities were out there trying to throw wedges between the veterans community. Um, 
And once I got laid off from BBA because the pandemic, you know, really affected every nonprofit in the country, um, I found myself with a lot of free time on my hands. A buddy who I had served with uh, kind of randomly called me up and said, hey, Goldie, I joined a neo-Nazi organization. I want you to help me take him down. And that was that. I I did it. I, I joined a neo-Nazi organization with him, and we worked to sabotage them from inside. So there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> so, so let's start with this. Right. So you're working for, you know, I, I, it seems a natural transition to me uh, after your experience to go work for a veterans organization of, of some sort. Before we leave that and kind of jump into, you know, completely into what you're doing today, which is, is fascinating, would it be fair to say that um, you consider yourself a fan of the VA system and VA healthcare, or is that pretty words yeah. in your mouth? No, the VA so, saved my life. Yeah. Like that's, that's, that's it, full stop. If it weren't for the VA and, and everything that it is, I would not be alive today. Do you, so what would you say to, you know, I guess policymakers, every, every here and there you hear, well, we can just give everybody TRICARE when they get out, and um, we don't really need this separate hospital system. What, what is your response to that? This this same friend who called me up and I ended up, you know, by the end of the phone call, joining a neo-Nazi organization a couple of years prior called me up because one of our friends, um, a guy that, that I deployed with, um, who deployed again in 2007 and got his hand blown off along with lots of other chunks of his body, um, was in a civilian hospital and despite the lack of his hand and, and other injuries, he's like the Incredible Hulk. He's a really, really big, intimidating-looking guy. Sure. Missing a hand, but he can still he can still deadlift. I don't know, but like ridiculous. The guy, the guy's a beast. So he had come into the hospital because um, he had allegedly been drugged and overdosed, and his kidneys were failing. And every time he woke up, you know, and this is in part because of the severe traumatic brain injury when he got blown up. He was confused and he was violent. And being such a big guy, the civilian hospital just kept knocking him out. Every time he woke up, they'd stick a needle in him and, and put him back down. And this is while his kidneys are failing. So I flew out there. And again, I've been a, a veteran advocate at this point for years. I understood how the VA works and everything. And me and my buddy basically stood guard over this guy so that he wouldn't have to be knocked out, so that he felt safe until we can get him into the VA hospital a week later. Once he was at the VA hospital, they knew how to deal with him. They weren't just like, yeah. oh, you're a scary vet with PTSD, so we're going to drug you. They took care of him. Uh, I know that's an extreme-sounding example, but that civilian hospital would have killed my friend if he couldn't have gotten out of it. But I think it speaks to, you know, the argument for the VA, right, which is that there's a specialized skill set when it comes to dealing with folks who've been to war, folks who've got military-related uh, service conditions. And so, you know, I, I just was curious sort of your take on that. Um, 
and and I think it this is an argument that is going to become more and more sort of a part of policy discussions as we move closer to universal health care, as we expand things like Medicare and Medicaid, which is great uh, and it's fantastic, but um, I, could, I could someday see, you know, coming from a place of well-meaning ignorance, you know, policymakers um, perhaps wanting to move on from a, a specific health care system. Um, so you're working for the Vietnam veterans and you identify some Russians who are on Facebook and, and trying to stir up, you know, stir up shit amongst uh, mm -hmm. American veterans. And your buddy calls you up, there's a pandemic, and they're like, hey, why don't we, why don't we take down this neo-Nazi? Had that been on your radar at all? Like, were you at all, <clears throat> you know, not interested in joining, but were you at all interested in the problem of veterans extremism? Yeah, so this, so by then, uh, we had seen Charlottesville, right? So it was, it was 2019 at this time, uh, when my buddy first contacted me, and then it was 2020 by the time that I actually, you know, went with him, both feet in, joined this organization, uh, and was inside for several, several months, uh, gathering evidence. Um, when he first said that he, he, that this was a neo-Nazi organization. I thought he was exaggerating. Like, I was like, okay, they're white supremacists. Like, great. But once I was inside, I got to realize, like, they're, they actually, like, they're reading Mein Kampf. They, you know, are, are based in racist and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that they, uh, you know, their version of, of America that they want to see is a white ethno state. The only way to get to a white ethno state is genocide, right? So it's literally an organization of, of young men in the United States who wanted to murder millions of their fellow Americans. Uh, and they literally loved Hitler, like idolized oh. Okay, so for our listeners who, and for myself, I'm not by no means uh, clear on the distinction. Can you, so can you sort of explain the difference between, what's the difference between a neo-Nazi and a white supremacist, right? It, is this a uh, banana banana or is there is there a real difference? Yeah, so, um, so as far as like law and justice goes, there's not a difference. Like if someone does does a hate crime, doesn't matter if they're a neo-Nazi or just a white supremacist or call themselves a white nationalist, right? Um, I'm specific when I use these terms because there are there are differences in ideology and the types of groups. So when I say neo-Nazi, I mean a new nationalist socialist uh, or national socialist. So this is national socialism is where the word Nazi comes from in, in <laughs> German, which I don't speak. I'm not going to try and say it. Um, but Nazi means national socialist. So they national socialist is not just white supremacist. It's not just anti-Semitic. It, it believes in a, a strong centralized government led by like a, a paternal like uh, uh, figure, like a, like a father like figure, right? Um, it, it, suppresses uh, political opposition through violence. It's, it's not just about, you know, winning uh, elections. It's about stealing elections. It's about ending elections. So 
white supremacy is, you know, could be someone who just hates people because of the color of their skin. A national socialist is someone who has a political ideology that's more complex than that. Do you... All of this, to me, sounds completely batshit insane, right? So, starting from there, how does one... And before we talk about the veteran aspect of this, so are these people... And, and this is Patriot Front, right? That's who we're talking about? Yeah, that's, that's who I joined that time around. Yeah, so how does someone, you know, normal... Well, maybe normal is the wrong word, but how does, how does a high school kid decide that, hey, you know what, I, I think there's something to this. I like this worldview. I want to join a group to, you know, to, to push this ball forward. Like how, where are these people coming from? Are they, is this learned behavior? Is this innate behavior? What, what do you think? So, so, for, so what makes Patriot Front unique and not among neo-Nazi organizations, white supremacist organizations in the United States is that there's an, up, an upper age cap. They only accept uh, people between, well, they say, between 18 and 35. They're looking for, like, military age, like combat age males to join. That's because they want to invest in someone who's going to be a soldier for the movement for decades, right? They're, they're thinking in the long run. Um, that said, there is ample evidence of them recruiting actual kids, like high school kids, um, and, and recruiting and radicalizing them. As to how folks get there, most of it is online, generally speaking. Um, but there are, there are different ways uh, that they can get there. Uh, in the case of some, it is they find something like 4chan or 8kun, one of these like anonymous shitposting message boards, and they start engaging with anti-Semitic uh, memes because it'll piss someone off, and they want to get more and more edgy. And over time, some folks, when... Well, when anyone's exposed to something over and over and over again, it becomes normalized. And at a certain point, you know, people go from embracing the, the shit posting and the trolling to piss people off because it makes them feel good to, you know, be an online tough guy to actually believing in this stuff to, you know, not just debating people online about Nazi ideology to piss them off, but you start, they start to believe it, right? Others. So, what, so what, how do they set the hook, right? You know, you've got some kid who comes to your website and you're on 4chan and, you know, they think it's funny to make a comment about, you know, Mexican immigrants or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. And then, so how do we get from that to, I will get in a U-Haul and drive to Boston and march by Fane Hall, you know, what? Yeah. Um. So there are a thousand different ways that, that could lead somebody into this. But to be specific about Patriot Front, uh, the same type of, uh, in order to join Patriot Front, you have to be willing to join a cult that, and everything that comes with that. You, in order to join Patriot Front, you have to push aside the rest of your life. You have to, there's this kid, Thomas Rousseau, I think he's 23 or 24. He was a leader of the Charlottesville neo-Nazi riot. Um, it, then the organization was called Vanguard America. He took it over, literally rebranded it, painted it in red, white, and blue, and called it Patriot Front, right? So this this is a terrorist organization that already killed someone. 
James Fields killed Heather Heyer in Charlottesville in 2017, right? Same guy, same leader, Thomas Rousseau, still a young guy in his early 20s leading this organization. In order to join this, this Patriot Front group, you have to be willing to pay Thomas Rousseau in a pyramid scheme to get propaganda that he prints stickers and, uh, and 3D printed stencils. And then you have to pretty much on a weekly basis go out either with other members of Patriot Front or on your own in the middle of the night and put up their propaganda with the goal of one, instilling fear in, in minority and other vulnerable communities, and two, in hoping that uh, the press is going to take a picture of that posted online and then, you know, the outrage of, of the propaganda targeting a, a group, right, gets amplified by the media and then ends up all over online. And it makes them, makes Patriot Front um, appear powerful, appear bigger, appear more influential than it is. And at the end of the day, every one of these hundreds of members are completely subservient to a kid from Texas who they're paying in a pyramid scheme to be part of a club that makes you eliminate the rest of your friends, turn your family away, and risk losing your home, your job, your community, um, because you know, you've been convinced that this cult is worth more than that. Can I ask you a question real quick? Um, there was a guy in the 1980s named Christian Pisciolini who used to be a neo-Nazi and now describes himself or later described himself as the anti-Nazi. And he made a few points that you've already commented on. Um, he talked about the three things that those groups offered him. And the three things were identity, community, and purpose. So our tendency when we hear about neo-Nazi groups is to focus on the ideology and the specifics of that. But what they're giving their members are the identity, purpose, and community that they're looking for. And the ideology actually comes second to them. That's why they stick around. So based on what you saw, do you think that still applies uh, today to the groups that are out there recruiting veterans? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, step one is not push your family away. Step one is is them giving you a new community who seems concerned about you, who seems to want to help you improve yourself. Like Patriot Front, you know, has projected, they're like the Instagram era neo-Nazi group. They post red and blue filtered pictures of themselves, you know, doing pull-ups in random places, right? Stupid. But if you're an 18-year-old, you know, skinny little twig or, or a guy who's overweight, you might look at that and be like, oh, I want to be like these guys, and they'll, they'll help me get in shape. And it can start from something as stupid and as simple as that. And then once they've given this person the community, that's when they say, you've got to push everybody else away. And then once they've pushed everybody else away, this, this new recruit, they have no other thing to fall back on. So they have no other choice than to stay in the cult because it's all that they've got. It really does seem... Obviously, with with very different kind of underpinnings of the mission that they're they're trying to accomplish, but it, it, it's taking advantage of, of some of the same things that um, you know that a military unit would take advantage of in terms of providing someone with a tribe. And what? Let's talk about the veteran piece of this for a second. So. I've always thought, and this is just a hypothesis, I don't know, and this is why I'm asking the question, but 
it's always seemed to me that the person who's going to get out and go join, you know, something like Patriot Front or the Proud Boys or, or you know, maybe even sort of strike out on their own as like, like a Timothy McVeigh, um, it's always sort of seemed to me like someone who, just as we were talking about before, is kind of lost and sort of in that transition zone and, and maybe looking for a new tribe. Is that accurate, not accurate? Uh, um, I mean that that can be. There's there's a thousand different you know personality types that can that can go in. Like Joe Biggs, who led the Proud Boys during the insurrection, who's a veteran. He wasn't involved in the Proud Boys because he was lost. He was just a fucking asshole, and like enjoyed hurting people. That's that's all that he wanted out of the Proud Boys, and that's what he got. He, he got to, you know, lead a group that was all about hurting people. Um, you know, and I, and I think a lot of folks make the mistake of, of going, like, the J.D. Vance route and being like, oh, they're not, you know, racist because they're just bad people. They're racist because they're... Oh, oh we lost you there for a second. Hopefully we ought to get you back. Uh, oh, there you go. You're good. All right. So... Uh, a lot of people make the mistake of going like the J.D. Vance route and giving people excuses and being like, oh, they're, they're, they're racist because they're uneducated. They're racist because they, you know, are in, uh, they have economic or social instability, right? And, and those things, yes, can be part of it. But a lot of people just get off on hurting people, right? And, and we saw that in the military. Some guys were there just because they wanted to hurt people, and the military gave them a way to do it, right? Oh yeah, not it's not the vast majority of them, but you know those guys. Like yep. they are, at the end of the day, not good human beings. And you know they may perform well in the military, but outside of the military, they still just want to hurt people. So, you know that's not exclusive to the military culture. That that exists, you know, online, in the real world throughout America. That's why, you know, not every mass shooter is a vet, right? Most mass shooters never served in the military. You know, they just want to hurt people because they're bad people. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's that's right. I mean, I guess I guess my question, if I think about it a little harder, is are there any of these folks that can be saved? Or, I mean, obviously, you have to answer for your crimes. If you're committing crimes, yes, you're, you need to go to prison. Uh, you know, your, your organization needs to be shut down. What, maybe percentage is the wrong word, but do some of these people bounce back and sort of disavow it? Uh, you know, you saw that a little bit in, like, the January 6th hearings where, where some of the rioters were kind of like, eh, you know, I, I maybe went a little too far. Um, but... Is anyone sort of just caught up in it, or is it, is it really people who are self-selecting for these groups, or is there anyone who is just, and my older brother did it, so I did it, and here we are? Yeah, again, it, there's like a thousand reasons why people do it, and there's there's all different sorts of experiences. From my perspective and the, and the perspective of my nonprofit, Task Force Butler Institute, we're not concerned with changing hearts and minds. Yeah. We're concerned with taking the bad guys off the field. Right? right. There's the idea of, of converting people or rehabilitating people. I've gone through that. Right. It, I had 
PTSD. I was, you know, in, in a bad place. I was, you know, getting in bar fights all the time. Like I was objectively a bad person going to bad places. It took the VA like five years just to get me to a point where I could go into a crowd and not ha- not be drinking to feel comfortable. Yeah. Right. I as I as a vet, I as I I leading this nonprofit. I'm not interested in doing onesies and twosies and rehabilitating people. I'm interested in providing economic and social disincentives, you know, be it civil or criminal courts, dragging these folks into courts, using the legal system to provide to that individual a reason to get out of the movement and as a, as a warning to others who are in or who are thinking about it. I want neo-Nazis, people who, you know, uh, white supremacists, all of these extremists, to look at these organized gangs and think that is an expensive and uncomfortable proposition. I don't want to be involved because the community that I might get from the Proud Boys, the drinking club is not going to be worth getting fired, losing my significant other, you know, getting kicked out of my house, losing my relationship with my family, right? My objective is to, is to drag these folks kicking and screaming into the sunlight using every, uh, every legal means available. Again, just to serve as a warning to anyone who wants to, to mess around and spread hate and violence. Chris, this question is more for our listeners who might not be uh, aware of, of both Task Force Butler and, and kind of the, the lay of the land on this topic. But why? Why is this necessary, specifically? Is I sort of, you know, in my in my uh, in more hopeful moments, I I'm I'm kind of thinking, oh man, I bet the FBI has you know infiltrated all these orgs, and you know it's it's only a matter of time before the indictment comes down, and you know all this stuff. But is that not true? And why is it necessary to push back in the way that you guys are pushing back? Well, so uh, for one, my wife is a Jewish journalist who works in the New York Times. You know, when when people are threatening reporters and specifically Jews, Jewish reporters, that's my wife being threatened. And, you know, a lot of people have forgotten about the MAGA bomber who's sending pipe bombs to CNN. It's my yeah. friends who are in danger of getting blown up. Right? So I don't have the, the luxury of ignoring this stuff. Also, with the last name Goldsmith, simply being in the veterans advocacy community was was enough for me to be targeted by neo-Nazis before I even really understood what this problem was. My first interaction, um, you know, with this with this really like online world of neo-Nazis was uh, during the Trump Hillary um, candidates forum at the Intrepid uh, during the 2020 election, right? Trump was asked a question by a woman who I can't remember what branch she was in, a veteran, one of our sisters, stands up and asks Trump what he's going to do about the suicide issue. And he interrupts her. He starts spouting nonsense using out-of-date statistics. Oh, actually, 22 suicides a day, you know, by the time that we all knew that that was not the case. And I was in the background of that TV shot, and I shook my head no. And some neo-Nazi out there, probably someone who I know, flagged me to a a prominent neo-Nazi account with like hundreds of thousands of followers 
and they they simply they tweeted about me and my phone was literally heating up in my pocket because i was getting so many notifications and the things that i were getting were you know um anti-semitic threats i was getting people going out of their way to take pictures of me and, and photoshop the star of david on my chest they were putting my head in ovens because my last name is goldsmith so in order for me to exist in the veteran advocacy community i have no choice but to face anti-semitic threats just because my last name is goldsmith so between you know my wife and friends being threatened with with murder with you know mail bombs uh with me being threatened and harassed simply for existing um i have no fucking choice but to fight so what's task force butler so task force butler institute is a nonprofit organization we're 501c3 we're relatively brand new just just launched in april of last year uh that trains veterans to safely and anonymously perform research on extremist organizations throughout the united states so uh, part of the reason that that it this became a thing was because i was doing this on my own you know from my experience having infiltrated patriot front i started going to the press and you know sharing my evidence of these extremist groups with them uh and if you know i was written about in the paper if i was on tv talking about extremism i'd have vets reaching out to me all across you know linkedin twitter you name it saying basically like hey put me in coach and for the first year of that of me you know trying to tackle extremism and raise awareness i was basically saying like i can't tell you how to help me do this because i don't know um because the idea of teaching veterans how to infiltrate a neo nazi group is like not safe it's objectively crazy i get that mm-hmm. but after some time um me and a couple of my colleagues guys who guys who work for me um got together and and uh came up with a pilot program then called Task Force Butler and started responding to those folks who were reaching out to me on LinkedIn these these vets of you know all different generations saying like hey I'd love to help um some who have like really advanced tech schools uh skills some who are data nerds got a, a former attack pilot you know for the navy who was flying planes before I was born uh and we said all right you know let's let's do some online research together and this has gone we are far more effective than i imagined we have ever could have been the the stuff that we're able to dig up online not because we're like secret squirrel like you know hackers or anything we're just googling stuff basically and sure. you get a bunch of folks together on a common mission you've got one target that be a patriot front or be it you know the, the proud boys or the 3%ers or whoever you get a bunch of guys working on a common mission and you know sharing all of our our data and our ideas together you know we can come up with a complete dossier of uh of criminal behavior that was engaged in by specific people at specific times point out the specific victims and create what is essentially you know all of the information and evidence necessary for a charging document or for a civil lawsuit so in the case yes. uh, no, in, the, in the case of patriot front last september we released a 200 and something page uh paper that that showed um three different instances where they conspired 
had interstate conspiracies to engage in violent hate crimes. In two of them, in Philadelphia and in Boston, they did succeed in uh, in attacking a black man simply because he was black. You know, both on Fourth of July, a year apart. Then a lot of people heard about them getting arrested in Port Lane. They intended on attacking a gay pride event. Um, we, you know, from the expertise of infiltrating the organization, studying, you know, uh, data breaches and news reports, we were able to put together a timeline and it basically a TikTok of how they conspired to commit specific federal and state crimes. And we produced this report and within just a few weeks, it was picked up by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights in Law and used in a civil suit in Virginia. And uh, we we believe that there are likely to be additional criminal charges that come from this. Um, that's fantastic, man. I mean, the you know it does seem I'm I'm no cyber crimes expert, but uh, I did stay at a Holiday Inn, so you know the um, it does seem difficult if your if your goal is to commit hate crimes. Recruiting or not, you know, recruiting people online seems to be like a pretty big Achilles heel, um, and it's it's awesome that you guys are taking advantage of that. Um, do you, do you have, I mean, kind of personal security concerns? I mean, the stuff you're doing, you've you've got to have an enemies list at this point. Yeah, I was I was doxxed two weeks ago by the Aryan Freedom Network. Um, within days, I was receiving threatening packages. I've had a neo-Nazi stalking my family. Showed up at my mother's house back in December. Um, you know, he's got his first criminal case hearing next week. Um, they attempted to swat me two weeks ago to have the cops mm-hmm. break down my door and kill me. So do I have security concerns? Yeah, they already attempted to murder me. Um, this this shit is, is real. But, you know, I can either cower in fear or, or I can fight back. So, yeah, you know, and, and frankly, if I were to cower in fear, they're still going to do it anyway. So it's either fight back or just take it. Yeah. Yeah, are you uh, are you guys recruiting uh, vets, like-minded vets, to uh, to help the cause? So we had for about two weeks after we produced our first report online, we had a sign-up sheet, and we got 400 people who signed up. Nice. We had to take down we had to take down the form because there's there's no way we just we're not funded yet. Uh, yep. All of last year was basically I was just paying for everything out of pocket, spent well my business. <laughs> All of my money for my business went into this nonprofit. We don't have the resources necessary to expand our team the way that we would like to yet. I'm, you know, just I'm new at this fundraising thing. I'm just starting to reach out to big donors. I'm I'm looking for professional fundraisers to help us. We will be expanding our team, um, but right now we've we've got we're at capacity. So, you know, the best way to support us is financial support or connect us to somebody who can offer financial support. That's fantastic. I mean, just just for our listeners, so, you know, a, a C3, a 501C3, um, I'm going to plug my own, the Vermont Afghan Alliance, uh, helping Afghan refugees in the state of Vermont. Um, it is a, a tax write-off, so it's a tax-deductible donation if, uh, if you're so inspired. And, Chris, thanks for your time. Where can our listeners find you? On yeah, so... They can find us on taskforcebutlerinstitute.org. Uh, I am Chris Goldsmith85. That's spelled K-R-I-S, Goldsmith85 on Twitter. Um, and 
know, if you if you Google Task Force Butler, uh, you'll see some of the work that we've done uh, in the news. You know, over the last well, we haven't even existed for a year, uh, ten months or so. Fantastic, man. Keep up the good work and, and stay safe. And, and thanks for your time. We'll have to have you on again. Thanks a lot, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to An Accountable America, brought to you by Veterans for Responsible Leadership. If you want to learn more about the organization, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or online at www.vfrl.org.